What if there would be a way to meditate that actually changes our brain? A way to meditate that is not only easy and effective, but also that we are seeing results within a very short amount of time. That is the promise of the meditation technique that my next guest, Dawson Church, is promising. Hello, Dawson. So nice to have you here on Empowerment Solutions. Thank you so much for taking the time. Friedemann, it's always a joy and a privilege to connect with you. Well, we had a wonderful time just a few weeks ago on your podcast. So now I'm really excited to have you on mine. And I want to talk about your new book, Bliss Brain, which is a fabulous, wonderful book. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And I certainly recommend it to everyone out there to read it, especially for those that really want to up-level their consciousness. But I have to ask you a little bit about yourself, because obviously you have been not meditating since your early childhood. So how did you become a meditator and how do you get uh, interested in it in the first place? Desperation, Friedemann. <laughs> Desperation. I was a very unhappy child my, my family had a lot of turmoil and so by the time i was like 12 13 years old i was thinking about suicide a lot and um i i actually I, like i can think back to high school about well, there was one one boy i knew who was happy and everyone else was either mildly unhappy or all the way down to people like me who are suicidally desperate all the time. And the people I knew in, in the church, my father was a minister, and the people I knew in my social circles, my relatives. I had one grandmother who was, again, mildly happy, but most people, in the as the saying goes, live lives of quiet desperation. And so I saw all these unhappy people. I was unhappy, and I thought, okay, got to fix myself, got to dig myself out of this pit so i went and i joined a spiritual community and we got deeply into the work of people like paul brunton and judah krishnamurti and alan watts and i learned a lot in that process but um i learned to meditate there as well but i also didn't get much happier and so i i, I became interested in psychology and i then did a lot of study and research with university and and learned a lot about psychology and get got mildly happier but you know the brain has what we call the negativity bias and it's just a part of our not part of our mind it's part of our brain it's the way our brain just gravitates to looking for anything wrong in our environment and my brain has always been expert at this it's really it has an exceptionally strong negativity bias and so um I learned meditation back then, but only when I was 45 years old did I make the commitment to daily meditation. And I want to just encourage everyone listening to consider that. Uh, usually when I do a, uh, a conference, a live conference, like if there are a bunch of people in the audience, I'll ask everybody to raise their hands and meditate every day. And when I'm, I'm, I've given a presentation, almost everyone does because they understand how, how important it is. So that daily meditation is really critical. And when I began to do that at 45, and this is more than 20 years ago, uh, I found everything began to change in my life. And so my money, my relationships, my uh, connection with my children, everything began to change very, very quickly. I didn't feel very much when I was meditating every day. I didn't, it's not as I felt like some sort of tectonic shift inside, but I noticed outside of myself, my life just began to get noticeably smoother and easier. And then that meditation practice deepened over the years. I then began to research meditation, find more effective ways of meditation. And finally in Bliss Brain, I shine the lens of neuroscience on the research into meditation, into the MRI studies, especially some EEG studies, and look and see from the perspective of science what's really effective. And it turns out that most of the stuff that I was doing, the way I was taught, most of the stuff people have been doing for millennia is mildly effective, moderately effective. A lot of it's ineffective. And so there are certain things that are MRI studies show are highly effective. If you start to do certain things, your brain starts to change within 
30 days. So we can actually put you in an MRI scanner and see brain volume change, volume of different parts of your brain changing in only 30 days if you do science-based meditation. So that's why I've come full circle from being a, a, a moderate meditator in my teens to being a, a passionate advocate of meditation today. Now, I have to circle back to what you said at the beginning, because especially young men uh, these days are, yeah, often very unhappy. And their suicide rate amongst those is incredibly high, shutting up every day, every year. So I'm just wondering, when you look back, what do you think was the root of your unhappiness? I mean, we can always say, yes, the... Uh, the upbringing, the parents, whatever. But when you look deeper, what do you think was really going on with you? What happens in the brains of traumatized people is something that is can be thought of as the trauma loop. And normally, if you are not traumatized and if you grow up without too many threats and problems, you have negative stimuli in your environment, something says something mean or nasty to you or inconsiderate or injurious to you. And so your emotional brain is triggered. It, there's something called the, the thalamic gateway, the thalamus that sends sensory information to your emotional processing centers, your memory centers in your brain. And normally those memory centers say, okay, I've, I've heard this negative sound or these words. And then that learning center refers that information up, up to the top parts of the brain here, the center line of the brain and the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex says, you know, that guy called me a jerk and he's a jerk. So that's what the prefrontal cortex can tell you. And it'll tell the, the, the hippocampus and learning centers. So that guy is just projecting, it's not you, it's him, no need to get stressed. Traumatized people hear those same words and it comes in through the thalamic gateway, it hits the hippocampus and the hippocampus fails to refer it to the prefrontal cortex. And what then happens is it sends a signal, the hippocampus sends a signal to the amygdala and that stress signal goes right into the body and that person gets stressed, their cortisol rises, the HPA axis gets triggered, and suddenly they're having a stress response to that, that thing that was said to them. So that's the difference. And so traumatized people, people who are suffering, are just stuck in this trauma loop where they, their brains aren't referring the information up to the prefrontal cortex to uh, evaluate whether it's really a problem or not. People who are happy, people who aren't traumatized, they laugh it off. They say that person said that mean, nasty, horrible thing. That just means they're having a bad day or they're not a very nice human being. But to the traumatized person, they can't tell. And so I was stuck in that, that trauma loop. And a lot of people are stuck in that trauma loop when it comes to certain parts of their lives. And so extricating ourselves from that, no longer driving ourselves into fight or flight. Freedom, I'm going to make the strongest possible statement that here which is that unless you can liberate yourself from those negative emotions and from the, that reactivity, you cannot be happy. You can't have a, a decent life where you're the master of your fate. You're just stuck in this looping trauma. And until you learn to regulate emotion, I'm not, not saying suppress emotion or dissociate from emotion, by all means feel emotion. But if you are controlled by emotion, it's almost impossible to get anywhere with personal growth, with creativity, with um, professional success, that those negative emotions are going to sabotage your life. And so that's why when we look at Tibetan monks who are meditators, who've been doing this for 10, 20, 30,000 hours, we find that they are superb. Their, their, their prefrontal cortex just regulates their emotional centers. They feel emotion. They feel all the emotion. In fact, they feel certain emotions much more strongly than most people. And yet those emotions are regulated. So that's the key skill we have to learn. If we don't learn that, we suffer. Now, at that time, you probably saw yourself somehow as a victim of your circumstances, or you saw yourself as small and insignificant, or who knows what identity you have taken on at that time. 
And then you started meditating and then your perspective on yourself gradually shifted. And just for, you know, it's a little uh, abstract to only go onto the brain level for people to know what really happens in yourself when you continuously meditate, when you look in the mirror in the morning and see like, wow, I'm not this loser anymore. I'm not this insignificant being. What happened for you? How did you see yourself differently when you really committed to meditation? What was your identity shift? So we have to make the identity shift from the child to the adult. And when you're a child, you are powerless. Somebody is hurting you or abusing you, and you can't do a thing about it. You're just stuck there. And so these trauma loops get established very early in the brain. And so we grow up and we feel ourselves to be these little tiny people. And we we don't update our self-concept when we do become adults. And so often people are acting as though they're powerless when they aren't. And the work of adulthood is to undo the trauma of childhood and then update your self-concept to that of an empowered adult. And, and you'll see this very often. Like I, I'm just getting chills as I think about this one therapist I worked with and she did this all on camera so I can I can uh, and she gave us permission to share a story we have a video of her on our website but she'd been abused she'd been sexually abused from the ages of three to the age of 17 so 14 years of sexual abuse and I I worked with her I was I was doing EFT acupressure with her on stage at a big conference and she was working on the severe abuse now again normally i would not work with a, a sexual abuse survivor on stage at a big conference like that i would pick something minor or something less triggering to work on but this woman was a therapist and i i'd gotten to know her over the course of the previous week and she was ready she was ready to shift i could just tell she was ready to shift so i was willing to work with her and as as we worked together and she, I mean, she just went through layer after layer after layer of emotion as we did this work together. And she went from being highly triggered to being completely calm. And when she finished that session, Freedom On, she, the whole audience was so triggered. I mean, you know, hearing about a, a child being sexually abused was just so horrific that I, I mean, I was barely holding back my own tears working with her because it was so un, such unimaginable hurt that that was done to her and yet when she when she finished that session she stood up and she looked at the audience and she said nothing that man could do could take away my joy i was joyful when i was two and three and four and five under the abuse i was joyful i'm joyful today i was joyful all along despite the abuse and so nothing that man could do could take away my joy here she's turned this horrendous suffering into a narrative of strength and victory and overcoming and resilience. So she's standing up there and saying, nothing that man could do could take away my joy. She's no longer the disempowered three-year-old being abused. She is the powerful co-creator of her reality. And she's able to look at that from perspective, from a perspective of the adult. So that's the essential work we have to do to extricate ourselves. We begin in this powerless way, we shift in this empowered way. And you know, every once in a while, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm I'm perfectly empowered. Every once in a while, I find myself acting in um in in ways that are, you know, just less than 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 optimal i mean <laughs> recently somebody said something nasty about me untrue and nasty on facebook and we had several people email in in into our organization very disturbed about this person saying something that was untrue and and unflattering about me personally on facebook and i you know i went through a period of like wow what is this and feeling those feelings so if you feel the child it's like the child being scolded or criticized and also because of our ethics code <laughs> well, we have a professional ethics code and our ethics code says you address those things privately with a person, not publicly. So I could not defend myself publicly. I just had to send a private email to this individual. That's all I'll, I'll, I'll do. I won't, I will, I will not bother defending myself publicly. I don't want to get into a, you know, a, a pissing contest, but um, so, but I felt that, that, that disempowered child for a few minutes there 
And when I think about this repeatedly, and, and the way I'm, I'm working on this in myself is an energy and emotional issue. It's not a physical issue. It's just somebody acting out their unhealed stuff in a way which is triggering me and they're being my friend my ally in healing because they're giving me the opportunity to heal something in myself that was not yet healed and so i treat it as an energy pattern i release the energy i do some acupressure tapping i do some breathing i do some meditation body work grounding and suddenly i pop into the empowered adult and then i start to have compassion on myself or the person who said those those untrue things i think you know if they're critical of me in that way imagine their self-talk imagine what's going on inside their own head and so now i just sit there with compassion for for that that person and i i was you know thinking for a while maybe i should just make a report to their ethics committee and their their profession about their behavior and i'm thinking you know i can't be bothered <laughs> i think that's definitely transcending something that most people would feel triggered by but yeah. you know it's it's a it's a beautiful way that you describe how we do have a responsibility to outgrow that childhood pattern with compassion and not just, you know, muscling our way through being empowered and ignoring our deeper vulnerabilities. And that is certainly something that you just talked about. But when you were writing the book and you describe at the beginning how a trauma hit you and your family, how this wildfire in California took everything away, including two beautiful cats, and you basically lost everything. Even a person who had no childhood trauma would really go to their knees in that moment. And it was not easy. But you describe how it you transcended this trauma and how eventually you actually were able to look at it almost in gratitude to describe this journey. For us. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. And I wrote the book, This Brain, in the year after that loss. And I wanted to figure out, for one thing, how I could be sitting in meditation having lost everything. And I didn't just lose all my possessions, and we lost our pets, and many of our neighbors died in the fire. I mean, we had friends and neighbors, and some of them, like, they went into their garages to try and drive out of the, the fire zone, and they the power was out, and they couldn't raise the garage door, and they died in their cars, and others went back, ran back to the house to get some heirloom, family heirloom possession, and then they died. I mean, one woman was found holding her dog. She went back for a dog, and she and the dog both died in the, in the fire. So there were these huge tragedies. And then in, in the year after the fire, we also lost all our money because our, our, our company just, just was so affected by, by the fire and the events around the fire. And so, you know, I was broke. I was also quite sick at the time, but I was meditating, Friedemann, and I was in ecstasy. And I thought, I'm going to share this, share this with people. It's like, you know, if, if I can live through this, but, but that, that night was just horrendous. We, we, my wife woke me up at 1245 AM. I looked at the clock. I then looked out the window and I, I, as I dashed out onto our outside deck, I saw the flames coming down the hillside and I, I just, I yelled at her, we're getting out of here right now. And we just, dashed through the house, grabbed car keys, grabbed our phones, threw on some clothes. And you know, you you're it's interesting you look back, like I I I I I I wound up later on having shoes on, but no socks. And my wife had a uh a a a, a jacket on but no shirt. And we were making these split second decisions. Do I have time for socks and shoes? No I don't. Shoes only. <laughs> no. shirt and jacket isn't time for both jacket only i mean you're making these decisions and then we 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 just barely got out as the trees were starting to blow up around us and it was a horrendous scene it was very loud too there were all these gas tanks exploding from the car from the cars in the neighborhood and a propane tanks exploding it was a, just a hellish scene and so we we got out and then we we uh we we went to a, a a hotel near the coast where we live in Northern California. And the that night the sun set and it was just blood red. It was this weird color because of all the ash in the air. And we woke up the next morning feeling completely crazed. And then somebody had snuck in past the National Guard 
to look at our house and take pictures. And they said they texted us these pictures and there was nothing there. There was just a concrete slab, gray ash and a chimney sticking up. And our office looked the same way. And we knew that that we all our positions were gone. And as I sat up that morning in in bed and I I was trying to just cope with this staggering loss we'd had in the previous couple of days, I suddenly realized that we were so out of balance. And I said to my wife, we need to meditate. It's like an emergency. We have to meditate right now. And as we sat there, Freedom On, in the hotel, upright in bed, closing our eyes, tuning into the, all it is, tuning into the reality of the universe, tuning into non-local mind, tuning into consciousness, we felt this immense peace just flooding us. And we literally felt our consciousness dropping back into our bodies. It was almost like you draw, you know, pick up a rock and drop it into a cup. It was like dropping into our bodies. And suddenly we were, oh, okay, I'm, I'm back again. And that was powerful. And we then began to talk about the last, what to do, where to go next. We were still very bewildered. We were quite bewildered for the, the next couple of weeks. But um, we actually, at that point, a couple of days after the fire, we began to have perspective on things and even make jokes about stuff we'd lost. Like I, uh, I, I texted our manager, the managers of our business, and of course the office building had burned down. Nothing was nothing there. And I texted her and said, "Heather, we've had a company objective for the last five years to move to." cloud storage everything in the cloud our goal is to have a paperless office and guess what there is not a single paper left in the office we met that objective so I, we, we were just we were texting each other a couple <laughs> days off the time funny things stuff we'd lost that we didn't we we we, we hated in in the house stuff we it was in storage we wished we could get rid of and now now the fire had gotten rid of it us it, it, the, the stuff for us so so we we it, it wasn't it wasn't like we we just recovered in 24 or 48 hours but we began to have perspective. We began to move into that adult perspective. And then that gave us resources for the next two years were, were very difficult in many, many ways. But we had resources. We felt resilient. And then in meditation, I closed my eyes. And for a few years that now I'd been, since before then as well, I'd been getting to these states of transcendence, reading about these Tibetan monks who get there copying them mimicking those states experiencing those states and and then realizing that your house could burn down you can lose all your money you can lose all your possessions you can lose your health and still be absolutely vibrantly happy and so i wrote the book in part to to tell people it's possible and that these are the, the mechanics of it and the whole the rest of the book after chapter one is all about those how your brain gets this way what those the neurochemistry of this is like and how you can do this and if, if you know people can lose everything and still be there it's possible for anyone else to do that too yeah it was remarkable also how in the end there was gratitude for all the lightness with what you have been traveling now and you found certainly a new home and even your pet turtle got found in <laughs> ash that yeah. was quite remarkable uh now i want to just uh, ask you if you can share because one of the or the the core meditation you are talking about in the book is this eco meditation these steps the seven steps can you just briefly share how these steps work i highly recommend people to get the book because the fun thing about the book is also that there is a extension uh, online where you can have a guided meditation with Dawson with music without music there is a script to it and every chapter has an additional way to deepen your experience so it's definitely something that is not just about reading but also living those meditations so tell us about these seven steps yeah at the end of each chapter of the book I have deepening practices and also extended play resources so there are links over there where you can go and download meditations you can download other resources and explore further in non-book audio and video formats and so eco meditation got going in the late early and late part of the the first part of the 2000s and i was looking for a way of making meditation easier when i had learned it in the ashram as a teenager the meditation master said, just close your eyes and still your mind. 
And those instructions weren't much help to me because <laughs> I couldn't still my mind. No one can still their mind. Or <clears throat> follow your breath or imagine thoughts drifting in, thoughts drifting out. Well, thoughts drift in, all right, but having them drift out is another, another matter entirely. So I never found meditation easy, and very few people do when they start. And I'd also been playing around at that point for a decade with heart math and with EFT tapping, energy medicine, biofeedback, neurofeedback. And so I, I knew there were all these wonderful techniques, and it occurred to me that you could stack them all on top of the other. Why not first begin with some EFT acupressure tapping, stimulate acupressure points? Why not use some techniques from neurofeedback and NLP? Why not use some self-hypnosis, go into heart coherence? Also, Roland McCready, who's the chief scientist at HeartMath, said to me, Dawson, when people meditate, they drop out of heart coherence. And I thought, they go out of heart coherence when they meditate? I, I don't believe that. So I hooked up some meditators, and sure mm. enough, they began meditating, and they just fell out of heart coherence. Mm. So I thought, let's develop a method that keeps people in heart coherence. So I, I just stacked these, these techniques up, and eco-meditation, every single one begins the same way with stacking these techniques one on top of the other. And then in about five minutes, you reach this incredibly deep place where even if you're not a meditator, even if you failed other meditation methods, you're relaxed and alert. And from that point on, you can then have a, a great experience. So it's a very, very simple technique, but it's it's using evidence-based techniques. So the neurofeedback technique is evidence-based. EFT has hundreds of studies. HeartMath has enormous amount of research behind it. And you're simply doing each of these things in turn. And then the whole is more than the sum of the parts. So we find people do really well on all kinds of metrics, happiness, anxiety, depression, physical health, immunity, pain, all of these metrics improve dramatically after you initiate that cycle of those seven methods. Now, for everyone who listens just to Dawson, you may think, oh my God, first I have to study all these methods before I can start. <laughs> it's actually not true. It's really simple. It's not difficult. I mean, you just go through these instructions and you can go right there. I mean, it doesn't need to have a lot of knowledge in advance. Yes, the EFT tapping to get the emotions moving at the beginning, that's good to know the acupressure points, but all the rest is beautifully described and you just follow. Now, here's one caveat, though. At some point, you say the key is to surrender to the universal consciousness. And I know that there are people out there that have big question marks in their foreheads or say, what are you talking about? Universal consciousness. I don't believe any of this stuff. Can you still reach this place even when you're a non-believer? Absolutely. You don't have to believe in anything. And research shows that people who are atheists and agnostics, if they just do these simple steps, are able to reach these transcendent states. If people are religiously inclined, they may say, I'm I'm reaching these transcendent states. That's God, an experience of God. If they're not religiously inclined, they just say, I'm reaching an elevated place in consciousness where I feel really, really good. Where we developed a new scale with Andrew Newberg who wrote the book, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And it's based on five characteristics of people who um, have these experiences. And Andrew has a database of about 2,000 people who have had these experiences. And again, many of them are not religious or not spiritual at all. And they often have them without any preparation or training. But there are five characteristics of people who do that. And we're measuring uh, we've now turned those five characteristics into a scale called the Transcendent Experiences Scale. And we're using it in research now. And we're finding that people are able to move into that, that space regardless of belief. So um, you'll feel what you'll feel if you don't have any strong belief in a deity or um, something beyond yourself, you'll feel a, a, you'll feel a sense of lightness. You'll feel your body, your mind, your thoughts, your emotions becoming noticeably lighter. Also, when people have had that experience one time, Andrew Newberg says, their brain changes and it never goes back. So one experience like that, one transcendent experience, 
has enough of an impact on the brain to where the brain never reverts to its old normal. So you have this experience, you know, like the great sage Ramana Maharshi. I've been reading Ramana Maharshi was a, a saint, a fully enlightened master in India in the 1890s and early 1900s. And he was asked many questions by many people. And I, I read all of the, the writings he that have, that come down from Ramana Maharshi. And he's, he just says, experience it. Don't debate it. Don't try and figure out why. Don't even bother reading the scriptures. Just, just go have the mystical experience. And it is it complete in and of itself. So regardless of your beliefs, regardless of whether you believe in a uh, regardless of whether you believe in a hereafter or uh non-local uh reality then you just go have the experience you then have that experience as something you've felt and uh is real for you when people come back one of the five characteristics that andrew newberg has has identified is that that state feels more real than material reality you're sitting there you're perceiving reality, you're then looking around you at the couch and the window and the plant, and those things seem like they're just mirages. They're just shimmering uh, illusions. They're, they're not reality. People who've been to transcendent states know in their bones that's reality and that everything we think of as being material reality is simply reflection and springs from consciousness. So it doesn't require belief to have the experience. Yeah, I mean, there is selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, richness. I mean, there are beautiful states that I think, yeah, that we want to achieve. And it's certainly nice to to experience them. And I love what you just said about, you know, just experience it rather than trying to explain it. And uh, one of the things about meditation, though, is that we are experiencing these states and then we get off the pillow and then we are our good old self and then we will go <laughs> right back into road raging or complaining and and i think you describe in bliss brain that there is an opportunity to actually live it live this state of let's say ecstasy or the state of higher consciousness and not just having it separate from your life so how does living in bliss brain look like so Another big project, also with a database of over 2,000 people, is Jeffrey Martin's book, The Finders, and his concept that we go from seekers to being finders. And then when you're a finder, certain things happen, one of which is an overall sense of well-being. And so people shift out of low-level anxiety, always waiting for the other shoe to drop, the next bad thing to happen, and they have a fundamental shift in their sense of the world and their sense of themselves and jeffrey calls it fundamental well-being i call those people awakeners people who, who awaken and when you awaken when you have these awakened experiences your whole worldview changes and you start to perceive the universe as benevolent are there still wars and revolutions and poverty and abuse and all of the ills of our world they are, are all still there and you have this fundamental sense of inner peace, and you understand that you cannot help the world or improve the world by allowing those things to disturb your own personal inner peace. So you are able to maintain your inner peace uh, during those, those states. So you move to that place of inner peace. What then happens after a while, and I won't get too deep into the uh, the research over here, but... Um, you we find people move from that sense of well-being within to having such a powerful presence that anyone around them be, moves into well-being as well uh if you've ever been to see ama the hugging saint or chidvalasananda or guru mind and uh or uh or gangaji names name you know four well-known female saints and there are many other living masters as well like i remember sitting in, a, in an audience with two thousand people with chidvalasananda and then getting what's called shaktipat from her where she touches your forehead and transmits a blessing and everyone in that 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 two thousand member audience seemed to be very moved by it to me it was it was highly um significant it was a big turning point in my life and so these beings radiate from around them and affect and condition 
the, the consciousness of people around them. So you meet a great master or a great saint or a great teacher, and you feel better just being around them. So that's what, where they move to after a while. And there are people like this probably in your life who aren't dressed in saffron robes and uh, counting the rosary. You probably just know people who are nice, like, you know, I, there's a store near me that my wife doesn't like because it's pretty shabby, but I like because I like the people there behind the counter. And they just have a culture, a company culture there at this pretty shabby grocery store where they're really nice to other people. And you just see them being nice to the customers and then the customers lighten up. And so they are in that that stage now of not just inner contentment. They're in that stage of radiance. And like those masters, they are a force in the world. Ramana Maharshi said, you want to change the world? It starts here, change yourself. And then you are this radiant presence around you and the people around you change. You know, there are people in your life who, when you meet them and spend time with them, you just feel better and you don't know why. It's because they're emanating these states. So consciousness after a while, initially it's really nice to live in a brain that's full of harmony and compassion and awe and gratitude and all the other words on the on this poster that I had made by an artist friend of mine behind me. So you live in that brain. And I gotta tell you, Freedomon, it is just wonderful to wake up every day in a brain with all these words in it. You know, just <laughs> it's just you're wake, wake up in a brain and a mind. And that's just the if, if you're the fish, that's the ocean in which you're swimming. It's totally wonderful. But that's wonderful for me and for the person there it isn't going to help necessarily help other people. So what I focus on doing then is work that is going to extend that beyond myself. So podcasts and blogs and books and, and various ways of extending the influence to, to other people. And even when they hurt you or harm you, you still are in that space. And then you extend that to everyone around you as well. You also sit, there's a lot large, there's a large group of people now, for example, who are doing daily sitting 24 hours around the clock, and they are bringing to mind in consciousness global hotspots where there are wars and conflicts, and they are meditating and extending that radiance, that sense of well-being, that sense of peace to those, those hotspots. And there's really interesting research showing that that actually changes the outcome of global geopolitical events. And toward the end of this brain, I talk about the research from HeartMath showing that when people are with one accord in that peaceful state, it literally produces shifts globally. So there's a very interesting interaction here. You think you're doing it for yourself, you're actually doing it for the world. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But I love that you say that sometimes we are in radiance when we are just in alignment, like these people in the grocery store. I know a person who works in a cafeteria in a supermarket. <laughs> He's the happiest person and everyone who comes <laughs> in with a frown comes out with a smile because of him. It's just a unbelievable gift. And so, you know, some people just reach that level without even going through the meditation. There's just something they are here to share. But that is a it's an interesting um, topic, the sharing piece, you know, not doing it for yourself, because, you know, I, I want to quote something about self awareness. Um, you said in the book, the curse of self-awareness, psychologist Mark Leary of Duke University shows the many downsides of the perpetual self-awareness. He shows that it leads to many forms of suffering, including depression, anxiety, and anger, jealousy, and other emotions. He concludes that self-awareness is single-handedly responsible for many, if not most, of the problems that human beings face as individuals and as a species. Now, I am a believer that we have too little self-awareness. So what self-awareness are we talking about? Yeah, he's talking there about the activity of the front part of the default mode network, especially the mid prefrontal cortex over here, right between our eyes that builds our sense of self. And that sense of self is usually obsessed with problems that happened in the past, threats to my survival or perceived threats to my survival in the past, it then projects those into the future and say, 
what bad thing might happen in the future. It is not present-centered. And so when people's mid-prefrontal cortex is highly active, they're miserable, they're self-obsessed. And a, a giant study done by two Harvard psychologists found, what they did was really interesting. They Actually, I, I won't go into the methodology of the study because it's complicated and it, I can geek out on this stuff for hours, freedom on, but <laughs> I'll cut to the chase. So the, their finding was that about 46% of the time we're thinking intrusive negative thoughts. Almost half the time we're thinking intrusive negative thoughts. Intrusive means you don't want to think them. I don't want to think about the bad stuff that happened to me. Like this Facebook post I mentioned to you, it was a week ago and I thought about it probably a hundred times. I don't want to think about it, but I, I just think about it involuntarily. So a lot of our thinking, and that's self-awareness. So it's that, that, that front part of the default mode network, building our sense of self, really worried about the future, really concerned about the insults of the past, not in the present moment, and we're just miserable. And when you look, for example, at the um, uh, brain activity of people with major depressive disorder, they're highly self-aware. In that sense, they're selfing part of the brain, the part of the brain that is building that sense of self is very active. <clears throat> and so uh, it's it's just, they're just thinking about themselves, self-aware in that, that way all the time as a suffering self and an unhappy self. In Tibetan monks with 10,000 hours or more meditation practice, that part of the brain is just switched off. And one of the fun studies in the book that I mentioned is in, in one uh, MRI study, the researcher is going to have these Tibetan monks enter a compassion meditation while in an MRI. So they told them, okay, we're going to put you in an MRI in about half an hour. And when you're in the MRI, we're going to give you instructions. We want to read what happens to your brain when you move into a, into a compassion meditation. And while they told them that, when they gave them that, that, that instruction, while they were telling them what was about to happen in the study in the future, that part of the brain clicked on. Mm. Uh, that, that part of the brain that that's it, it's actually the, it suppresses your sense of, of 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 obsession about self and so self-regulation regulation of that self-obsession again is one of the four brain circuits i talk about in this brain which is vital to happiness so uh, others are the compassion network the fourth one is the attention network and the first two are the are the the selfing suppression network and the emotion control network so you do those four things activate those four circuits in the brain and that's what these these monks and nuns do and you're dramatically happier as a result so this form of awareness is like the person who has you know one part of their body they don't like and they're identifying the whole body as <laughs> such so it's not really the awareness of us in a wholeness way or as a totality or in all its dimensions it's focusing on the problems or the shortcomings or the things that can go wrong so thank you for explaining this because you know i think most of us lack the awareness of our potential of our greater good of our you know purposes on the gifts that we here to share all we certainly are aware of are more the things that are about self-protection or about, you know, again, this idea of not feeling good enough. So would you say that when you are having this voice coming up, you describe it beautifully in the book that you're meditating and all of a sudden you think about accounting or if you send this email out. And uh, so you, I'm going to quote you here because it's really sweet. So basically you say uh, that you, in those moments where there is this, voice, this um, self-obsessed voice coming up, that you're not angry because you say, I love my mind because it's so inquisitive and curious and thinking and more <laughs> is that what the mind does? Wanting to change it like is like standing on the beach and wishing the waves to stop. It's futile requests that can only lead to more unhappiness. So there's a lot of compassion here that doesn't make this necessarily wrong, but it's more like an acceptance of, yes, there is a part of the mind that may come from our child mind, it may come from traumas, it may come from habits, but is not fighting, it doesn't necessarily make you feel more in harmony with yourself. 
Yeah, and I, I did. I was very angry with my mind for a long time, Freedom On, because you, you reach this inner state of meditation for a few seconds, and then you drop out, and your mind kicks in, and you think about something disturbing, and that pulls you out of that peaceful state. And I, I would try and meditate and get back into that state and then i succeed for a few seconds and then then drop out and so for a long time i was very angry at my mind and one of my sayings was sometimes i would just scream out loud god give me a lobotomy (laughs) (laughs) my mind was just making me so Uh... miserable the buddha says the mind is what causes suffering. Uh, Carl Jung said much the same thing. A number of modern psychologists point out the same thing. We're just thinking, and that thinking is usually making us miserable. And I was so angry at my mind and so frustrated, trying to control it for so many years and failing. And now I just say that's what the mind does. And so eco-meditation, for example, does not require you or even recommend you try and control your mind. You just let your mind do its thing. It's hunting and pecking, and it's just looking all over the place for something to worry about. And you just more or less let it run around and do its thing. It does get a lot quieter during uh, eco-meditation, but it still is going to do its thing. And then when you get angry at it, of course, then you're just contributing to your lack of inner peace. So you just let it go play and then keep returning yourself to the breath and to the present moment. And after a while, you just feel such peace. And then you have compassion for other people, but you also have compassion on yourself. And you're, you're doing your best. I mean, we're all doing our, our best. And that best may not look very good to us, but we are trying our hardest, we're doing our best. You just have compassion and love for yourself. This also makes you way more loving and compassionate to other people. So you just see them doing their best. They, they may be struggling. They may not be doing a very good job. It's the best they can do right now. And that's self-love just lets you off the hook you haven't succeeded in certain things you haven't grown in certain important ways and you love and complete yourself accept yourself completely and in eft that's actually the fundamental statement even though i have this problem i deeply and completely love and accept myself and that love and self-acceptance breaks the energetic struggle in the mind between the part of the the mind that's saying you should improve and the part of the mind is saying, yeah, I'm going to stay the way I am. And that's the, the struggle that many of us are, are stuck in. You need to improve. You need to quit smoking. You need to lose weight. You need to make more money. You need to be a better parent. Blah, 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 blah. It's always chattering at you. And it's driving you you crazy. So if you just learn to breathe, accept yourself the way you are, you you eliminate that struggle, that energy clash going on. And suddenly your life becomes way easier. You accept yourself the way you are. Now, a caveat here is that you still do strive to be better. I'm not saying just, you know, go out go out and eat McDonald's hamburgers and French fries and top it up with ice cream for every meal. <laughs> or quit exercising because you don't feel like it. You know, you still, you still run your body effectively and you need to manage your emotions effectively. And you still need to manage your finances and your work and your family uh responsibilities so i'm not saying you you don't do all that stuff but you just accept yourself the way you are and that you your whole psyche lets out an enormous deep breath at that point you relax and carl rogers the great family center therapist of the 1950s said the paradox of change is that when you accept yourself the way you are that's when transformation happens I completely agree. I think in that moment where you don't really fight yourself anymore, you have a much easier time to improve yourself because it's not about resisting. It's not about battling. It's actually, I think, almost a natural evolutionary state of expanding and and growing into this next phase of yourself without necessarily any yeah, harmful or hateful feelings. And that is certainly something that uh, you beautifully describe. Now, in the book, you also said something really beautiful about those that do struggle, especially with meditating. And you say, the act of persistence may be more essential to the meditator than the permanent attainment of bliss brain. The true hero may be she who persists, not she who wins. So how do you keep, for anyone who is listening, feeling motivated, okay, I'm going to get this book, I'm going to get started, 
And then they do it and they feel like, yeah, I didn't really get there. I don't know. I just going to be up. How can we keep on being motivated? Yeah, it's the old saying that it's not how often you fall down that counts. It's how often you pick yourself up again. And so you just pick yourself up. Now, there's one crucial study done at Emory University that I present in chapter two. And what that study found was that every meditator goes through a four-stage cycle. You're in bliss brain. You're feeling at a peace. You've hit this meditative peak. And then number two, you fall out. Number three, you recognize you've fallen out. Number four, you put yourself back in that elevated state. And then you fall out again. And then you notice. And then you correct yourself and put yourself back into that state. So it's this four-stage cycle that even <coughs> experienced monks and nuns are doing all the time. And so knowing that, all you have to do is keep on going through the cycle. The cycle gets easier with practice, but just keep on persisting. And what happens after not a long time, like we did one astonishing study, this this one study we did just um, shifted my whole perspective on eco-meditation. And we had, we used MRI scanners, really um, modern, high resolution uh, scanners from a company called Siemens. And we use these state-of-the-art Siemens high resolution MRI scanners. And we had half the group do eco-meditation for a month and the other half do mindful breathing for a month. And we examined their brain structure and function before and after those 30 days. And we found that the group doing eco-meditation had structural changes in the brain in 30 days. Now, think about that. Your brain structure is changing. Imagine going to the gym, working out, pumping iron, and 30 days later, you look like Chris Hemsworth, you know, <laughs> but these people's brains looked like that. They, they had structural change to that suffering part over here, the 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 mid prefrontal cortex. That part looked like the Tibet, Tibetan monks. It looked like someone who meditated for 10,000 hours, even though they'd only done it for a month. And then the compassion network was all lit up. So compassion, gratitude, joy thankfulness, all, all those emotions, that part of the brain was highly active in 30 days. So the cool thing about eco-meditation is it doesn't take six months of practice, but even after a month, people are able to, to get there. And then you start to feel so good. You start to feel just absolutely ecstatically wonderful because of all the hormones and neurotransmitters you're experiencing. So serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, norepinephrine, nitric oxide, beta endorphin, anandamide, flooding your brain every day. And you know, serotonin, serotonin has the same chemical structure as psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and anandamide has the same structure as THC, marijuana, and cocaine and 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 heroin use the dopamine pathways of the brain. And so you have all of these very similar natural neurochemicals being produced by your brain spontaneously without any kind of a drug. And you are just in this ecstatic state. That's why it's called bliss brain. I mean, these people don't just feel okay after that few days and 30 days of doing it, they feel ecstatically happy. And that's the state that we find people are reaching. Keep on building that state for a while. And you have enough neural capacity now in those neural bundles and those parts of the brain where you start to be permanently in that state. You've turned that state now into a trait where you are just occasionally happy as an emotion. You are a fundamentally, temperamentally happy human being. And have these people ever been asked about how they act in the world differently? You know, it's a, it's just a very subjective thing, but do they, I mean, happiness or any of those emotions, but do they experience also in their actions changes? Yeah, or, we found yeah, a couple of, mm -hmm. we've done interviews with people going through these programs where they're doing eco-meditation. And there are a few interesting things. One of the striking ones, we have a one, one, one class called the short 
path to oneness. And it's really, this is a really demanding class. I mean, it's not like doing eco meditation for a month. You're signing up for a nine month mentored course with a therapist and a mentor and groups and a half hour practice every morning. Um, and you're doing the work of that great sage Ramana Maharshi and you're doing it for nine months. Um, so this is, this is a, a serious commitment to do the short path to oneness. And so we interview people on, on the short path to oneness. And one of the, the persistent uh, responses is relationships. Their relationships tend to get, their marriages tend to get better. Uh, some of them have been in, in, in long-term relationships that aren't very satisfying. And their relationships just improve. And their their spouse obviously isn't in the class, isn't trying to change usually, often maybe resistant to change. But the dynamics change as the person in the class becomes more compassionate. So there's usually an enormous improvement in, in relationships. I was just watching, we just videotaped a group of people in the short path to oneness recently. And another interesting thing was, was physical health. One woman had a, a large tumor. And within a few weeks, she went back for a scan and the tumor was gone after she'd been entering these elevated states. So it definitely changes your, your body chemistry. In one study, we found your cortisol drops dramatically when you start to do eco-meditation and your immunoglobulins, your immune markers go up dramatically as well. So uh, we know there are biochemical changes, but people are reporting these substantial shifts in their level of health. So relationships and health, those things will change. That's why I began by saying, you may feel different. And where you'll see the difference usually quickest is around you in your relationships and your, your mm. wellness, people's skin often clears up. They certainly energy levels. I mean, you know, I can't believe it. Like now, as I'm approaching 70 years old, I feel far more energetic than I felt at 35 years old when I was half this age. I just have so much energy. Some days I'm just walking around, pacing around, just full of, I mean, just the life energy flowing through you is so extraordinary. You laugh a lot. My wife and I, sometimes we, we get in bed and go to sleep at night and we just hold each other there. And this is after, you know, many, many, many years of marriage. We're holding each other as we go to sleep. And then she starts chuckling and I start giggling and we start laughing. We just lie there laughing for a while because we feel so good and you get to feel good in your body. You feel energy in your body and you feel vibrantly healthy. I guess not that it's like you never get COVID or never get the flu or never get sick or never have an injury. You still have to be smart about the way you live your life. But you just dramatically up-level your life. It begins with the meditation. It's an inner state. That state becomes a trait. And then it starts to affect every domain of your life. Epidemiological studies show that people who are positive and optimistic with goodwill and compassion live a lot longer. I mean, 10 years plus longer lifespan and health span than people who are pessimistic, negative, and um, prone to st being stuck in stress. So yeah, powerful external shifts. Wow. I mean, anyone who is not convinced yet to start meditating <laughs> hasn't listened. <laughs> so Dawson, how can they find you, the book, and your organization and everything? That's my job, Freedom Odd, to convince people. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing very good. <laughs> Doing a great I mean, science, science is what convinces me, you know, that's that's why I'm, I'm so in love with science, because, you know, I just, we take stuff into experiments, and this works, this doesn't, and then you have the facts. So uh, that's why science is such a good guide to all of this. Yeah, so uh, to download Eco Meditation, it's free at DawsonGift.com. Just my name, D-A-W-S-O-N gift gift.com you can download a free eco meditation track and it's one that has to do with immunity because again we found that people's levels of immunoglobulins rise after eco meditation for a few days so download the immunity track track there and there's also access to other eco meditation tracks at dawsongift.com and there's the free eft tapping mini manual at dawsongift.com and then there are links so certified practitioners highly trained people who know the stuff, do the stuff and can help you. We have an app called Stress Solution where you can work with a certified practitioner live video conferencing. We have a site for veterans where we 
treated over 22,000 veterans free of charge over the last decade, people suffering from PTSD. Uh, all of this is is all accessible through that DawsonGift.com link. And the book can be found anywhere. It's called, again, Bliss Brain. And you have several other books that you should also look on Amazon and wherever to find them because they're all very fascinating and research-backed and uh, just always also written in your fun spirit. Very uplifting <laughs> and, yeah, so encouraging. So thank you so much, Dawson. This was such a delight to have you here. You certainly radiated like the great <laughs> store owners, <laughs> making everyone feel good. And uh, I just love talking to you. Thank you. You know, we it's it's our it's our birthright to feel good freedom. And I'm working on a new book looking at some of the brain circuits behind this. And it turns out everyone has them, but most people are just too stuck and stressed to use them. And so when you do these things, you're triggering these these brain circuits and then you use them and you just find yourself becoming happier. So it's literally hardwired into the structure of every human brain. We may as well use it and have a life that's full of love and laughter. So thanks for having me share. I so enjoyed this. Thank you.